Well, we have an unusual title for our message this morning, Join the Ministry, See the World. And uh, that title comes with a question mark. You may be wondering the origin of the title. Well, it takes my mind back to growing up in the United Kingdom, walking down the typical high street. And as you passed by the army recruitment offices, you saw this slogan, Join the Army see the world. And many, of course, did join the army, my brother being one of them. It was in our family history that somebody was going to join the army, but he did join the army. And as I reflect upon his nine years in the British army, two things come to mind. First of all, the slogan was true. He did see the world. He spent three and a half years in Osnabrück in Germany, in the biggest garrison town in Europe. He sent postcards from Norway, catching a suntan, skiing in Norway, coming to Canada on exercise and visiting the 1984 Los Angeles Olympics. Those things stick in my mind. But what stuck in his mind and stuck in our mind is that the slogan wasn't the whole truth. And so there came a time in which he was stationed in the Mays Prison in Northern Ireland during the Troubles. Mrs. Thatcher had just changed the category of the IRA terrorists from prisoners of war to criminals. So they had the Dirty Campaign, which is too gross to speak about, and then they had a hunger strike in which 10 of the IRA terrorists died. My brother was involved in taking the last ones to hospital as they broke that strike. And I'm sure he would tell you, if he was here, that the slogan was true, but it wasn't the whole truth. I think the same can be true of ministry, especially as we contemplate the ministry, that we need an all-round view of what it is we believe God is calling us to. I'm sure that uh, many of us would affirm the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones. To me, the work of preaching is the highest and the greatest and the most glorious calling to which anyone can be called. But I'm sure if he was here this morning, he would say, but that's not the whole truth about the ministry. We need to know the other side of the ministry, how it is God works in us and in the people we serve through this glorious calling. And so we turn then to this most personal of Paul's epistles. And Paul identifies here six counterbalancing features of ministry which those who are pondering the ministry need to be fully aware of if you are going to give due weight both to the ministerial privileges that come with a call to ministry but also the ministerial challenges or responsibilities. Because it is very possible for us to come at this sense of calling with a romantic view and then to have a shocking wake-up call once we enter into the ministry. And it is then to preclude, as God helps me, that sense of shock that we come to this passage this morning. And the first of the features that we notice is found in verse 1, that ministry is call-dependent. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, 
and Timothy, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints which are in all Achaia. Paul tells us that he's an apostle by the will of God. He's not simply introducing himself. He is stating the authority by which he can name himself an apostle. And he's declaring in the context of the epistle that the God who ordained his apostleship also sustained him in his apostleship. And it was sustained, first of all, in the face of disappointment. The church in Corinth, many of you will know, was founded during Paul's second missionary journey in the house of justice. Acts 18 verse 8. Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house, and many of the Corinthians believed and were baptized. Yet having left Corinth after 18 months, he soon hears that the immorality of Corinth has entered into the church there. And it's a matter of significant disappointment to him. And so you can go back to 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13, where he writes a letter which is now lost, probably because it fulfilled its purpose, in which he laments what has happened to this fledgling church. Those who have been in ministry know what it is to pour your life into a situation and to make some progress and then to see the work tumbling back. It's a matter of significant disappointment, but it is a matter with regard to which Paul was familiar. And so it's called dependent not only in the face of disappointment, but also in the face of opposition. With worldliness in the church, of course, factions soon develop. And from the toings and froings of letters, lost and kept, 1 Corinthians, and of visitors to the church, Paul, Timothy, Titus, we learn of a group of Jews who grew up in the church claiming that Paul was not a genuine apostle, that he could not be trusted, that he was cowardly, and he didn't particularly care for the Corinthians. And so Paul denounces them in this second letter, calling them false apostles and deceitful teachers, deceitful workers. So what's my point? Well, my point is this, that being in seminary is a great place to ask God to give you a strong sense of conviction, a strong sense of calling, so that if he confirms that you are indeed to be in the ministry, when those disappointments come, when that opposition comes, as we can assure you it will, that you have such a sense that you are a minister, not first and foremost of the church, but of God, that you are able to face down the disappointment, to face down the opposition. Perhaps this is part of the reason why in our day we have such a drainage from the ministry, because there is a hyper-expectation of ministry perks and a hoppo exposition, expectation of ministry challenges. And so Paul recognises then that the call comes from God, although it must be recognised by the church. A strong sense of calling is, brothers, what we need to enter the ministry. Then secondly, we notice verse 2, that ministry is God-conscious. 
ministry is not only from God, as we in the Reformed tradition loves to state, it is about God. And so by the time we come to the end of verse 2, God has already been mentioned three times. It tells us of the God consciousness of the Apostle Paul. He's not entered into some career move. He's not entered into some carnal expectation of climbing a ladder. But it is about God and it is about God's glory. It is about the church of God and it is about the gathering in of the elect of God. And so in verse 2, we learn of Paul's confidence. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. The salutation is more then than a formality. This is a brother who is smothered by accusations of the false apostles. And it's the grace and peace from God the Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which keeps him keeping on amid all this suffocation of accusations from the false apostles. We have um, the legacy in our own day of um, a practical theologian called Jack Miller. And Jack Miller is uh, well known for these sayings. You may have got them from Spurgeon. Cheer up, I'm far worse than you can imagine me to be. Cheer up, the grace of God toward me is far greater than you can imagine. And so as Paul gives this salutation, I can but envision him thinking, well, I know these accusations are coming against me, but I know my own heart. I know where my sin really lies. And so he's saying, cheer up to himself. Grace and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. That's his confidence. But also we notice from verse 2 his heart. For as bruised as is the Apostle Paul, he salutes the Corinthians sincerely. How they need this grace and peace. Previously Paul had written out of anguish of heart. But hearing of their repentance, the salutation paves the way for him to say in chapter 2 and verse 1 that he would not come again to them in heaviness. So you see what Paul's God consciousness does, and it will do it for us too, and you will need it. The God consciousness gives the Apostle Paul on the one hand a skin that is thick enough to roll with the punches, and yet thin enough to still do his pastoral work, to still care for the people under his Service, God consciousness, something that we need and something I fear that in North America we really have to push against. That it's not about me, it's about my God. Thirdly, ministry is experienced shaped, verses 3 to 5. Blessed be the God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Clearly, we don't minister the word in a vacuum. We look to God not only to apply the word, but as personalities who are expounding the word, we look to God to bless our experiences to the people to whom we minister. And so, amidst the ongoing dialogue with the Corinthians, Paul blesses 
God. He blesses God, first of all, verse 3, for what God is. He is a merciful Father. He grants neither Paul nor the Corinthians what they deserve. Rather, the Father pities them. And through Jesus Christ, the Father demonstrates that contrary to the pagan gods of Corinth, he is the God of all comfort. And thus, to prove the point, Paul introduces the first of ten Greek references to the idea of comfort. It is not then, brothers, fleshly machismo which is going to keep us in the ministry. It is a realisation of what God is as also who God is. God is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And through Jesus Christ, he pours out grace and peace towards his servants as well as towards his people. And then we notice he blesses God for what he does. Verse 4a, who comforts us in all our tribulation. Paul says, I can say from experience that God pours forth his comfort in all our thalipsis, in all our pressure, in all our stress. So he teaches then more than that comfort oozes forth from God, but rather that God is the comfort who oozes towards his people. It's a tremendous teaching. Paul's participle, paracalone, conveys the Father's coming alongside in an ongoing manner. God gives himself, he oozes towards his servants. Yet since paracalone can also mean to call alongside, it's feasible that Paul also has in mind the fact that when we are in the midst of pressure, that when we're in the midst of stress, we call upon the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ to come alongside us, to be able to do what we, in our weakness, are unable to do. Thirdly, with regard to ministry being experience-shaped, Paul blesses God for what he purposes, 4b, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. Notice then that our comfort does not terminate upon ourselves. That's Western individualism. Rather, we are comforted to be a comfort. So the Father comes alongside us precisely that we may come alongside others. And sharing from our experience how the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ has sustained me, I can then come alongside the people I serve and say, just as he sustained me, so he can sustain you. And then fourthly, he blesses God for what God accomplishes, verse 5. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. The sufferings he mentions are experienced on account of union with Christ. Our sufferings do not make satisfaction for sin, but they do aid the proclamation of salvation. They are taken hold of by Christ to cause comfort, paraclesis, to abound. 
So we often say then, don't we, that our labours are not in vain in the Lord. But what Paul is saying here is that our sufferings as the servants of God are not in vain in the Lord. That God is well able to take my affliction or your affliction to bless the people of God. I think of a number of friends of mine of late. Brenda and I have been praying for them. I think of one brother of last few years who has taken a church in Mississippi and no sooner was he there than he was diagnosed with some form of brain cancer and he's out and now he's coming back and he's learning how to speak again and he's beginning to preach again. I can guarantee it and I'm sure you can as well that his sermons are listened to far more intently than they ever were before. And people can relate to this brother far more than they could be before they ever could. Because he is going through the mill. In that case, he's not going through the mill for the gospel. But nevertheless, he is afflicted and out of his affliction, he speaks. And the ability of Christ to cause the comfort of the gospel to abound through his sufferings has a knock-on effect on the people he serves so that they can abound in their sufferings too. You know, one of the reasons why I've come to this uh, passage this morning, as Dr. Beakey has just said, being the uh, senior minister-elect in a congregation in Kuala Lumpur, I uh, noticed the other day, the World Watch, Afghanistan is the most dangerous country in the world right now for Christians. Malaysia is 50th. Five years ago, on February 13th, a pastor, Raymond Coe, left his house, driving down a highway on the outskirts of Kuala Lumpur, and it's caught on closed-circuit television, of him on the highway being surrounded by seven cars. And in 40 seconds, he's abducted and he's never been seen again. What's his crime? Reaching poor and needy Muslims. So we ask ourselves, brothers, are we up for the sufferings of the calling as well as the glory of the calling? That is immensely important to ask ourselves in this opportunity, this window in your life, when you are sitting in your classes and contemplating what the future holds. Am I up for the sufferings of the calling as well as the glory of the calling? Fourth, ministry is people touching, verses 6 to 7. In God's plan, our union with Christ creates the oneness in the body. Thus, what God permits in the lives of his servants, he uses for the sake of the body. And Paul here mentions three things. First of all, our affliction. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Paul notes against the backdrop of the false apostles demeaning him that afflictions enable us in ministry to come alongside the afflicted people and to further their salvation. They don't add to what Christ has suffered for our salvation, but they encourage the saints along the road to the consummation of their salvation. 
And so ministers are not necessarily tight-lipped about what they're going through. It's a ministry opportunity to say, this is what I've been teaching you from the Word of God, and this is how the teaching of the Word of God is working out in my own affliction. And as we do that, we come alongside the afflicted on the one hand, and by strengthening them, we further them along the road to the consummation of their salvation. So we share our affliction, we share our comfort too. Or, verse 6, whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. So our comfort points those to whom we minister to the God of all comfort. It enables them to minister without distraction. It enables them to have greater confidence in the mercies of the Father. I received a message from a brother in Eastern Europe that recent weeks. Are you able to help me with a hundred euros a month? If you are able to help me with a hundred euros a month, I will be able to minister without distraction. I think that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about here, that it's not only our afflictions come alongside people, but our comfort comes alongside people as well. And then Paul also says, verse 7, our hope does so as well. And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as you are partakers of the suffering, so shall you be also of the consolation. Despite the disappointment and the opposition, Paul and Timothy retain hope for the Corinthian church. It is the church of God, Paul has already written. They are confident there will be those in Corinth who will stand with Paul and suffer with him accordingly. But in doing so, they too will know the Father's comfort. And so, brothers, I would say to you this, especially to those of you who are, who are on the verge of leaving seminary, and maybe conversations are opening up with a church, make sure you understand that when those conversations are going on, it's not about a paper contract. Yes, there will be contractual details, but that's not the essence of the thing. And nor is it that you are simply going to be a hired hand. But it is about the building of a pastoral connection in which there is a growing maturity of the relationship between you and the people. And although the preaching of the living and the written word lies at the heart of that pastoral connection, the way in which that pastoral connection works out is through affliction, is through comfort, is through hope. Ministry is people touching. It's not a paper contract. It's not a hired hand. It is a fellow feeling between the minister and his people, the people and the minister. Fifthly, ministry is humility instilling. Verses 8 to 10. Paul now refers to a specific suffering in Asia. We're not exactly certain what it was. Remember from Acts 16 that he was forbidden by the Holy Spirit to go into Asia, forbidden by the Holy Spirit to go into Bithynia, and then he comes, and I've taken this trip, he comes right to the very shoreline. This is one of the beauties of going to this part of the world. You see things which you don't necessarily realize from the scripture. He's traveled a thousand miles across Turkey and he comes literally to the water. He can't go any further. 
And that's when he sees the Macedonian vision. Maybe it was illness, maybe it was persecution. But he's saying here that whatever he experienced in Asia, it was for the salvation of the Corinthians. And so notes their emotional effect, verse 8. For we had not, have you ignorant brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, literally pressed hyperbolically, above strength, insomuch we despaired even of life. We talk about Paul as the great apostle, but he says, here I am, and here I was, at the end of my own resources. I had nothing. My tank was empty. And then he speaks of the spiritual effect, verses 9 to 10. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, which raiseth the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and doth deliver, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. Suffering was not simply to render effective Paul's service, It was given for his own sanctification to strengthen his, Timothy's, trust in God. That we might believe that although we are as good as dead, and he may be thinking about being left for dead in Lystron, Acts 14 was it, that we might believe that the resurrection is not simply a proposition, an article of our faith, but we've seen Something of the resurrection in the way in which, although empty of our resources, God, as it were, raised the dead and enabled us to carry on ministering. And on the basis of the resurrection power of God, who breathes fresh life, fresh force into our ministry, what happens? Well, here in the King James Version, they looked at the past with thanksgiving. They looked at the present with relief. And they looked at the future with hope. My mind goes to that great poem or hymn of John Newton. I've chosen it in North America. And it may be a commentary on where we are at in our part of the world, that it was deemed too negative by some. But it's realistic. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favoured hour, at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, He made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. After my father died in 2015, he'd kept a diary from 1958 to 2015. Not one that's written in sentences, but facts and figures, dates and stuff. But I was struck by this statement. 
a man who retired at 53 with multiple sclerosis. I was struck by this statement. Something had happened. And he says in his diary, my humiliation is complete. He wasn't saying that he'd reached sinless perfection, Christian perfection, but as he looked at the providence of God, he saw it like a donkey's tail. That the more it grows, the lower the ground it gets. And so when we came to his funeral, he'd always said, laddie boy, my details are on that file there, on the computer. So when we opened them and we looked at the hymns he'd chosen, as a minister of the gospel, it was all about how God had brought him low in his own estimation that Jesus Christ might be lifted higher and higher and God be glorified through his weakness. If we are in the ministry for our own personal glory, we're in the wrong place. Because God will sanctify us even in the midst of our ministry. And so finally, the sixth feature of ministry, it's prayer requesting. Verse 11. You also helping together by prayer for us, that for the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, thanks may be given by many on our behalf. In view of the way God humbles his servants, it's unsurprising that the last feature of ministry that Paul mentions in this passage is the need of prayer. You see, we live in a culture, don't we? We can do it, yes we can. We can do it, yes we can. That was one of my first experiences of America, going to a town square in Pennsylvania during the Bush-Shaney election. 40,000 people in the marketplace chanting, we can do it, yes we can, we can do it, yes we can. But we come at it as ministry and say, no we can't do it, no I can't. No we can't do it, no I can't. But the grace of God is sufficient. The grace of God is sufficient. And in that sufficiency, what happens? Well, we're blessed by the petitions of God's saints. In looking to God, God uses means to encourage his servants. The prayers of God's saints are a gift to us. We need the humility to receive them. But they become partners in our ministry. And so as they partner with us, so they rejoice as they see fruit coming through the ministry because of their prayers joining with the pastor's prayers so that God's word may receive fruit. And so I encourage you, brothers, as you go out to your churches, to encourage not only maintenance prayers, they're important, the afflictions of God's people, but also frontline prayers, that we of all people believe that a sinner is dead in sin, not unconscious, it needs a miracle of God's grace, and so we call the people together, we say we need to pray for the ministry of the word, effectual calling comes typically through the word. Regeneration is a monogistic work of the Holy Spirit, and so we need God to blow by His Spirit. And so we pray. We pray. And in that prayer, there's a wonderful fellowship between the servants of God and those they serve. And so in the West, we fear our days of pampered existence are coming to an end. Look at what's happening in Canada amongst ministers of the gospel. Look what's happening in the United Kingdom for preaching the gospel on the streets. Paul seeks not to underplay the glory of the calling. He simply seeks to forewarn that there are sufferings as well. May God help us to have this all-around view of the ministry 
as we ponder what our place is in the plan of God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you not only call, but you sustain. And we praise you for your grace, the mercies that come to us from God the Father through Jesus Christ and abound toward us. And as you minister by your Spirit to us, so you minister through us to those whom we serve. And so we pray for these brothers who are to go out into the ministry, praying that as they ponder your calling in their lives, that they would be taken, enamored, not only by the glory of the calling, but the privilege that is ours of suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for the comfort that you send to us. And you are that comfort. But we pray, Father, that we would not hog that comfort to ourselves, but wherewith we are comforted, we may be able to comfort others. And so glorify your name in and through the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Follow your word with your blessing, we pray. Cleanse us from our sins. Sit our eyes afresh upon Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.